What's up and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us today. Today we have on Jason Kanzler, minor league hitting coach for the Houston Astros. Jason went undrafted and unrecruited out of high school and tried to walk on at Northeastern University in Boston and was cut after fall ball. He then went on to attend the University of Buffalo and became the first D1 player ever to win the Gold Glove Award twice. He also won the MAC Player of the Year, he won the University of Buffalo Student Athlete of the Year, and then was drafted in the 20th round by the Twins as a senior sign for only $1,000. Jason played three years in the Twin system, during which they won a Florida League State Championship and then he spent the next two and a half years teaching high school physics and chemistry while also coaching baseball. He was hired by the Astros last year and was the hitting coach in high A. So on the show, we talk about the art of coaching. We discuss the importance of data and how subjective measurements are also important. And we dig into conversations in the dugout and how we can teach the game within the game. Here is Jason Kanzler. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Shout out to Chase Lambin for putting us in touch because, uh, again, Chase is a coworker of mine and a good friend of mine, and and I know that that he always he like we were talking about off the mic is about two degrees of separation from just about everyone in minor league baseball, and and you two are close as well. So I know if if he put his stamp on you, then you must be pretty good. So no pressure there. But for our listeners who want to get to know you a little bit better. Can you give us a short snapshot of your baseball background and then why you decided to get into coaching? Sure. So I I was actually unrecruited out of high school, and I spent a year just as a regular student at Northeastern University. And I happened to play my last season of American Legion Baseball that following summer. I was pretty young for my grade. And luck would have it, the volunteer assistant at University of Buffalo was a coach on that team, and he kind of saw me play, and he called up our recruiting coordinator, and that's how I got into Buffalo. And I played four years at Buffalo. I had pretty successful uh, campaign there, and then I was drafted by the Twins, and I had three years of minor league baseball with the Twins. And then I kind of took a little hiatus from baseball altogether, and I just felt the pull to get back into it um, and maybe help help some players have what I thought I didn't have when I was playing and uh, coaching seemed like the best option. I love that. And and I love, you know, going through your background a little bit, you were a teacher first uh, before you, I, I guess maybe you were a teacher and a coach before you got back into professional baseball. And so tell us a little bit about that. And then I've, I've got some follow-up questions because for me, I think teachers are the best coaches just because again, it's, it's if you can go into a classroom and you can teach a group of kids who don't necessarily or may not be interested in a subject, then I think that you can coach baseball players who are really interested in the subject. And so tell us a little bit about uh, your teaching experience. And do you think that that made you a better coach? I think teaching definitely, it informed a lot of what I do as a coach, because like you said, when you're teaching a group of students, especially the the classes I taught, which was they were like remedial physics and chemistry classes. So it was usually for kids that really did not want to be in those classes or maybe didn't have a strong background in the necessary um, underpinnings for those. It really opens your eyes to how you need to connect with those kids 
in order to deliver the information and the content. You cannot just um, pull rank and rely on the authority given by the title of teacher and their you know title of student. So I like to take that into coaching because I think the same dynamic exists at least in minor league baseball where you know there is a, a definite and disparate rank difference. But I I would never want to pull rank. I would want to rely on you know really strong relationships, lots of trust, and deliver content when it's appropriate and uh, when you know the athletes are ready for it. For sure, for sure. And I think that like the minute that that I started to become a better teacher, I I think that I became a better coach just because, again, I, when when I was growing up, I had this. Maybe it's unrealistic, but maybe it was just kind of how I was raised in a small town of the coach having like every say and and listening to him and everything that he says. And he was at the front of the room and he was talking a lot. And that's kind of how that's kind of how coaches were whenever we were growing up and even before then. And then now you start to look at a lot of different coaches being facilitators more than than the ones who have all of the knowledge. And I think again, and and this goes back to whenever you know our our coaches who coached us were growing up there weren't a lot of sources of information and so your information came from your coaches like the coaches that you either learned from and for the players it, it had to come from the coaches because again there wasn't a lot of information there wasn't twitter there wasn't blog posts there wasn't fan graphs there wasn't all of this stuff to learn from and so every almost every bit of information that i learned growing up was from word of mouth uh, and this is before video really started to to hit mainstream. And so I think that that's that that we're in an interesting time that it has started to switch from, okay, now all of our players have access to all of this data. They have access to all of this information online. and and so we're more in it to instead of giving them information, we're we're helping them to filter information. we're we're not having to get up in front of a room and just, tell them all of the things that they need to know. It's more of helping them to get to where they want to go. And depending on how driven they are, kicking them in the butt uh, every now and then. But is, is that kind of how how you've seen? Have you seen that switch too? because I, I know we're of a similar age and, and I don't know if you had that experience as well. Yes, uh, I definitely feel like as a player, we were probably on the bubble of when free information was becoming available. So I definitely relied a lot more on my coach's word and the authority aspect of that. Whereas now, you know, everyone has a built-in BS detector in their pocket if they so choose to use it. And that includes the players. So it's really not about lecturing a waterfall of information. It's more about facilitating and understanding and really, you know, leveling the playing field between the coach and the player or the, the teacher and the student and just facilitating some kind of progress or learning for sure, for sure, and and I feel like again, I, I love being able to pick people's brains about this. But this is and this is this is my show, but this is your interview. Uh, but I I felt like a lot of a lot of what we do now is instead of being the sole source of information, we're a filter of information. And I again, I, I think that you are alluding to that as well. But can you go into depth a little bit about that? Absolutely, I I agree with you completely. So now it seems like. Uh, an effective educator or coach, the, the job is more uh, reducing the noise than it is enhancing the signal. And in baseball, especially with kind of more dogmatic points of view and parties, and people seem to latch on to ideas 
and rightfully so because sometimes they're latching on with their career. So it really becomes imperative that we are able to delicately filter out what is what is not so good for that player or that student. For sure, for sure, I'm I'm right there with you, and and it's it's a tough job for us too, and I think that that that's that is interesting for us because again you like you said they have a lie detector in their phone they can literally pull up anything that they want to and check to see if we're right and sometimes we have to check our ego because we might not be and so that's that's such an interesting dynamic something that if we value if we value being helpful that and and also putting our ego aside that that they're going to let that go from times but if it continues to be a problem they're going to stop listening to us and so I think that that's for me, that's motivation to make sure that I'm that I'm doing my job well, that I'm trying to stay up as much as I can. But again, if I if I am ever wrong, trying to put that ego aside and just saying, hey, you know, you're right like that. That is something that I learned and, and you're you're right about that. Or maybe I had a different view on that. But, you know, something that that you are getting the opportunity to do, you are uh, in Major League Camp right now. And, and thank goodness that we get to start and watching some baseball this week and and so you, you guys have been down in Houston getting the players ready. So you're, you know, you're working with some of the best players in the world. And one of the, the common themes that keeps coming up with people in your situation who are working with big league guys and even minor league guys who are in the top 1%, the commonality is trust. And so how are you an advocate for them? How are you gaining that trust? How are you making sure that, that you are giving your best self for them and then they in turn trust you with with their career at some point. So my my mentor always says a phrase that um, I I almost live by as a coach, and it's he says silence is a sound. And with with these kind of with these caliber athletes, the major leaguers, there is a ton at stake. And I think the way I build trust with with players like that, especially when they they don't know who I am necessarily. Some of them do, and some of them were just getting to know each other. Um, I really have to be careful opening my mouth, so to speak. I don't want to vomit words or information, and I, I like to put myself in their position. What would they want to hear, and what would break their trust if they heard? And I, I think as a player, I really disliked when coaches spoke just to speak and it almost felt like they were speaking to hear themselves talk. Uh, so I try to avoid that at all costs. And I would rather say nothing at all and just observe than say something that I wasn't 100% behind. I love that. Silence is a sound. That's really good. And it, for me being a talker, that is definitely something that a lot of people have said. And so I've started to try and and take that uh, into consideration for sure. And I think that that there's times where, and this is something that I always told my classes because you'd ask a question and no one would say anything. And I would always say, I, I don't mind awkward silences, right? And so, but when, when you're in the midst of it, it's like, okay. But sometimes I think we as coaches, we want to help the player so much that we want to start giving them stuff. But to your point, it may not be, we may not have enough information for that to be helpful and, and it may derail either their progress that they're making or it really could derail their career. So uh, another thing that you've gotten the opportunity to see, one, how is, how is everything going? Uh, I know you guys are, you, you mentioned off the mic that you got, it was really weird having like no fans in the stands and getting to getting to hear the the fan noise through the speakers and there's nobody up there and it's a really different setting. So can you tell us a little bit about that? 
uh, yeah, you know, it's it's new. It's it's an interesting uh, environment. Um, I, I think the guys are doing a really good job staying in it mentally, despite the basically total lack of you know external motivators. I, I think when you when you play, it is exciting to play for live fans. So the fact that they're they're able to stick with this for as long as it's been going on over two weeks now, it's really cool, and uh, I'm. I'm proud of them and I'm I'm happy that we're able to get this going smoothly so far and relatively. <laughs> it's been interesting but but fruitful and exciting. You've gotten the again you were a coach in high A last year and you've gotten to work with big league guys. You've been in the minor league system so you're not too unfamiliar with this. But what are some different what are some of the biggest differences that you see or and maybe not huge differences they they could be but also just maybe subtle differences that you see between guys that you had in high A last year or whenever you played and then guys that are in the big leagues consistently for, you know, 10 year, 8 to 10 years. There's two main differences. First is major leaguers are on average just physically different. They're usually dialed up a couple notches on the genetic scale. But the the second thing that is more interesting to me is their attitude and it might stem from the shift in who's in control really. I I've always felt like in the minor leagues the players are really beholden to the coaches and it is they're almost scared or there's definitely fear to to not make anyone upset because you can you can start to think that a specific coach or a group of coaches holds your career in their hands, so to speak. You know, if you if you piss off the wrong person, that might that might end up in your release. Whereas in the big leagues, it is basically totally flipped. There's no more fear of that per se. And so you really need to you need to connect with them on a deep level because you can no longer at all rely on a, a title, so to speak. Do you think part of that is just because... Uh, again, whenever they get to that point in the big leagues, they may have had 10, 20, 30 different hitting coaches in their career. Absolutely. And I think they've they've also learned that it is their career through time. And I, I guess for the minor leaguers that would be listening to this, I would really hope that they would embrace that as soon as they could and not be afraid to own their career. And also at the same time, the coaches, I I would love for coaches to approach minor leaguers just as they would approach major leaguers you know pretend that they're worth 20 million dollars and that you can't whatsoever pull rank or rely on this you know power construct it's just a conversation and it's a a level dynamic with them sure i love how you put that that's that's really really good you know we we mentioned and we hit on this earlier a little bit we we talked about being filters of information and again, you, you and I have, have been able to, we're old enough to know what it was like for, you know, pre-data. And now we're starting to see in, you know, the last, what, maybe five, eight years, just, just the explosion of different things that, that, uh, we see. So some of the, some of the really, really young guys, uh, haven't been able to see both sides where it just, it's a, it's a crazy difference. I mean, I, I remember growing up and seeing like, uh, like home run derby footage and like really grainy video and, and just, it, you could not find videos anywhere. And we were, you know, we were still watching VHS tapes and now you literally can, can scroll on your phone and find whatever it is that you want. 
data plays a big role in that. And just, uh, again, depending on the organization, I'm sure players have access to more or less. Some have access to everything that they want, some don't. But what role do you play as far as just delivering that to players, being a filter of information? And, and how have you gotten better at that? Because I, it's obviously a skill and we, and we need to understand and learn that. But remember our audience, we're speaking from you know amateur coaches, high school coaches who all have access to data and it's not a full-time job. So how have you gotten better at being able to filter that information and make it relevant to each player? Like you said, we, we have to filter it, but also I think the job is more like a translator. And so we need to have a very deep understanding of what this what the data is that we're working with. Because if we don't have a deep understanding, then our translations aren't going to be sufficient and it's going to be a, a pretty bad game of telephone. And we're going to end up delivering poor messages or obfuscated messages that are really not translating into anything simpler. Because I think simplifying this vast amount of data into very understandable, actionable, easy items is paramount. The The player's job is not to be an expert of understanding the data. The player's job is to perform on the field at the major league level. And I think that a lot of times an uh, overabundance of information for these players negatively affects their performance because they get too heady and they start to know too much for their own good. You just, I would hope that players have an understanding of what they specifically need to do without necessarily, you know, knowing how to take the engine apart and rebuild it, so to speak. For sure. And for our, you know, for our amateur listeners who are trying to sift through, you know, should, should we use data, which, you know, yes or no maybe what is the most bang for their buck. So uh, another question that, that I get a lot, and maybe you can help answer this is I I'm working with, let's say I'm working at a high school with, and I'm the only hitting coach and I've got, you know, 30 players and I don't, you know, I don't have necessarily have time to do K vest and TrackMan and, and maybe not have the budget for all of these things. But if I was going to try and invest in maybe one thing, uh, what would what would be you know the most bang for your buck piece of technology that you would encourage people to invest with if again if they have the budget <laughs> and they have the time for that? Ooh, that's a good question, Jonathan. To be honest, I'm not sure I would recommend any one particular piece of literal technology. I would say pencil and paper, and you can just track. Um, <laughs> you can just track hard hit line drives in batting practice uh, for your hitters and just make a leaderboard and use some social pressure techniques to drive more focused, higher quality practice without necessarily diving into the weeds of, you know, the exactitudes of, you know, the launch angles and the exit velocities, which in my opinion is pretty irrelevant at that level, even though everything you would see on social media would, would have you believe that it's the only thing that's relevant. I, I think it's pretty irrelevant at that level. You know, a pencil and paper will suffice or really just some kind of way to, to keep track of who's having quality practice versus who isn't. So let's, let's dig into that a little bit. 
But say that you, that you went back and you were a high school coach again, and knowing all of these different things and having access to literally just about any piece information and tech in the world, what would be important to you? Because again, you mentioned that kids are seeing exit velocities and, and launch angles, and they're led to believe that that's all that matters. How would you get the point across that for you, that that's not all that matters? How would you help amateur players to understand what's important and what, what makes up a good hitter? I guess I should be clear that um, exit velocities, you know, hitting the ball hard is very important. But uh, at the high school level specifically, I think a lot of that takes care of itself with just maturation, puberty, strength training. That That's really kind of an, it's an effect that's just going to happen. So I don't, I don't know if we need to actually spend a ton of time and effort driving it per se, but, you know, there is value to training high output swings. But if I were to track something or if I wanted to teach something that I think is very important for that level of hitter, it would be consistency, barrel consistency. So I wouldn't necessarily judge guys on some kind of absolute um, exit velocity threshold. I would just use subjective, was it hit hard for that player or was it not? And was it hit at a good angle or was it not? Um, and I would want to track consistency of those results because the ability to find the, the sweet spot in the barrel, especially in batting practice, it should be nearly second nature in batting practice. It's much harder in a game, but if you're taking batting practice, there, there's a level of success that should be expected. Sure, for sure. And again, thank you for clarifying and going into depth with that. I know that that's a, that's a question we get a lot is, is we see, you know, trends on social media and social media is good for a lot of things and it's not good for a lot of things. And so I, and I did this and I still continue to do this at times as I get caught in these wormholes of what am I missing? Like, is this, because again, we want to, we want to understand content that's important to our players to help make them better. And if I feel like if I'm missing out on something, then I'm, I may be missing out on an, on an opportunity to help a player in the future. And so I get stuck in these, these different wormholes. And so I'm starting to, to be able to get better at recognizing, you know, BS trends early on or as, as early as I can. And I, I don't know, I, I don't know how much you're on social media and I'm sure it's not a whole lot right now with, with as busy of a schedule as you are. But are you, have you fallen into those same trends and, and are you kind of seeing some similar uh, things like that? I think I've actively and sometimes outspokenly avoided falling into things like that. And I, was, I wanted to actually ask you, do you think that the reason you or other people might feel that way is because the very, the, those very wormholes and those conversations on Twitter and that, that kind of information is presented in such a way to make you feel like you are that make you feel like you don't know what you're doing. Oh yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. And I, I, I like to look at um, the motivation behind a lot of this stuff, and a lot of it seems to be driven by uh, some kind of financial gain, and you know, writing a narrative that would that would drive purchases of you know courses or certifications, or you know, maybe just rewriting the vocabulary and the language of the specific topic so that you know, coaches are swarming to it because they're they're operating out of this place of, you know, kind of FOMO. And you start to, like you said, you start to think that you're missing something that might really, really help your athlete. So I tried not to 
go down those wormholes. I still get the tinges and the pangs um, every now and then when I see something that I connect with, but I'm I'm not necessarily familiar with. And for social media, I've actually been off social media for almost four months now, uh, five months now, uh, kind of doing a, a cleanse. I deleted the apps off my phone just to to cleanse myself of it. Good for <laughs> you. Good for you. A lot of negativity. And that's something that I've been, I've been doing myself. You know, again, it's data and, and technology is all about how you use it. And for me lately, it's been uh, just kind of a negative drain. And so, I, you know, there are a lot of good people on Twitter and I've learned a, a ton uh, from a lot of different good sources. And now it, it just, you know, it depends on how, you, how it makes you feel. If, if you're getting on there and you're learning something every single day and you're getting better, then by all means, social media is good. If, if you get on there and you are in a constant just state of madness because you're pulling your hair out because of the things that you're seeing, then it's time for a cleanse. And so I, I completely understand it and get what you're talking about. And, you know, for, for our listeners, you're not just a pro professional baseball coach. You also have a kind of a side hustle, I guess you could say, or another opportunity to help players in the off season. And so you have a program called own the off season. Let's talk a little bit about that. What's that about? And, and what do you guys do? It's me. It's myself and Alex Simone, who's uh, been in the baseball training space for a while now. And, we, 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 uh, we have a collection of different programs for different levels of athlete, strength and conditioning, uh, speed, power, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, we, we've been doing this, we've been in that space for quite a long time, almost, almost a decade for both of us. And so we figured we might as well find a way to, to get this out to more people, uh, because we had been operating under just very private, one-on-one uh, -on -one type of training. It's it's designed mainly for high school and college baseball players. We do do some some upper level programs, but really the our market would be high school and college players that are looking for you know kind of tried and true methods that that we can stand behind that we we've seen work for you know rotational throwing athletes. No, I love that, and 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 I love getting getting giving you the opportunity to share that because again i like to have guests on that have worked in several different spaces because uh, again i think that we can get jaded into trends depending on the players that we work with and so you're working with players from literally 13 to 30 and so you're seeing a lot of different things within that which i think is a it brings value to our guests because there's more more people that can listen and learn from you Let, let's talk a little bit about you know the the technical side of hitting and let's say that I sign up for own the off season and, and I get the opportunity to work with you. You don't know anything about me. And so I show up, you've got your video camera ready. What are some different things that you are looking for as far as me as a hitter uh, for my swing, or what are some of those just immediate things that you start to gravitate towards because you think that they're important? Uh, I really like looking at the quality of the movement. And then timing, rhythm, and tempo. Those are kind of my, I guess, my four, the very first steps. Before I dive into reductionist mechanical things, I, I want to see the whole picture. And I want to see how the, how the athlete is moving in space and in time. And it's very subjective. I don't have assessments, exact assessments. It's kind of trusting what I have, what I believe I've learned in, in terms of what quality 
movement looks like, what control and tempo and and good timing looks like. So, you know, it's it's definitely not maybe in line with what is currently happening in baseball, which is a, a push towards very very you know exact assessments and finding you know the exactitudes of someone's movement. I I'm relying on subjective global cues and indicators before I dive into something deeper. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about that. Whenever you mention quality of movement, can you, can you go a little bit more in depth with what you mean by that? Because, you know, I, I think that if, if we saw it, then, then you'd be like, yeah, that, that dude's a good mover, but do you mind going <laughs> into some, some detail of what you mean by that? Sure. This might be, this might be hard because I don't think I've ever really asked myself that question. I've kind of just let it become intuitive. Um, I guess a quality mover would be someone, someone whose movements look smooth. Uh, there's no, you know, there's nothing cicadic or syncopated about it. It seems effortless given the outputs. So even a max effort sprint, for example, doesn't seem like there's grinding or true. It doesn't look max effort, even though I know the speed is max effort. Uh, for a swing, things seem to link up in in good sequence. There doesn't seem to be any disconnections between any body segments. There seems to be good intramuscular coordination. The muscles seem to work at the right timings relative to each other. Those those sorts of things. Can you also mentioned timing, rhythm, and tempo? <laughs> and obviously, timing is is a it's kind of tough to teach because again, it's, it's something that is, is a little bit innate to every player, depending on, you know, how they start and, you know, do they have a leg kick? Do they don't? And so, uh, and that's just one, one of many examples, but how do you measure timing? Cause again, you're, you're talking about that you have several subjective tests, which obviously are useful. And obviously you've had some success with that, which is perfectly fine. I, I think that I want to get the point across that, if you are doing your homework, not every single thing in baseball has to be completely 100% measured to the decimal point. And uh, I, I, I mean, baseball has made a lot of players better by just video, right? And, uh, and, and so anyways, I'm getting off on a tangent and we can do that here in a minute. But I want to ask about uh, just how do you measure timing? Like how do, you, how do you ask a player, you know, were you on time? What does that conversation look like? And, and then just kind of what is your subjective measurement on how you're you're deciding whether they're on time or not well uh i think you can you can see it in real time in in games usually Um, you can absolutely tell when a player was very late or very early you kind of alluded to it i think having a conversation with a player sometimes just knowing what their perception of their own timing was is really powerful even if it's not uh congruent with what you think because that can at least start a conversation and maybe lead to some things that you weren't aware of or that they weren't aware of. You know, timing, you can definitely assess timing pitch to pitch, but really it's more at bat to at bat and and probably it's kind of, you know, week to week. You you need a you need a lot of you need a lot of pitches worth of observation to get a sense of a player's timing if you're going to use just your eyes to do it. Now you can you can also do things like you know, you can assess contact depth for timing, but things things muddy that as well. Like you don't necessarily know what a player's approach is, which could affect the depth of contacts or 
where they're trying to contact the ball. So I know it's not exact, but sometimes your eyes can be a very powerful tool. And let's not forget that your eyes are a biological piece of technology. (laughs) They are incredible. And your brain is incredible at doing things that no computer on the planet can do yet. No, I'm right there with you. And and the more that that I read, like I've taken this year to try and read as much about the brain as I can, just because I'm fascinated with it. And our our brain can recognize trends, and sometimes we we get some confirmation bias, and and we are all biased in in certain aspects. And so being aware of that is is a big deal. And obviously, cookie cutting is not what we're saying as well. But there are there are things like you said that our brain picks up that. That are it's just even the world's greatest supercomputer would have a tough time being able to do that, and we could do it in real time. And so, which leads me to my next question too: is the last couple of years, you and and I have both seen, and a lot of us have seen the prevalence of objective measurements, which for a lot of ways is a is a really good thing. And just like any trend uh, and pendulum swing, it feels like okay, now everything has to be objective and there's nothing that can be subjective or everything has to be this or everything has to be that. And and I've always tried to take somewhere in, in the middle and in between. It's like you're working with a player and you're, you, you know, all you've got is an iPad. Do you want to stop the entire hitting session to go try and, and rent a K-Vest uh, just to try and get more information? Maybe not at that moment, it, like it may be helpful, uh, but at the same time, it's like, how can we help the player now? Are, are there, is there value in, you know, some subjectivity assessments? Uh, and I, even with data, I don't know if, if everyone agree, would even agree on what data is good, which is, which is crazy to even think about, which can be subjective too, but just kind of, I was just spewing at the moment. So if, <laughs> if there's anything of value in that, that you would like to comment on, please, uh, you know, get me off sure. of my soapbox here. Sure. I guess first Data and technology is neither good nor bad. It's just uh, it's just tools and, and measurements. And the way it's used can be subjectively good or bad, or it can be used in positive ways to affect performance or negative ways to affect performance. And that's really the, the art is figuring out when those, what those ways are and when to use them. Um, and it's very difficult, especially with the ever-increasing amount of technology and the understanding of the data. It's almost like you have to relearn or remold your understanding of this stuff constantly. Now, you asked, is there value to subjectivity? And I think based on uh, what I've said so far in this podcast, uh, I, yes, absolutely, there is value to subjectivity. And it's not because it's not out of a a, a loathing or any kind of ill will towards data or technology. It's just that it's more towards, I don't want to throw away the baby with the bathwater. I don't think that we should abandon subjectivity just because there are no accurate and precise measurements put on them yet. And I think the keyword is yet. We just, things that are subjective now could be objective in five years, in 10 years. We just currently don't have ways to measure these things. And what I think a lot of people are figuring out is a lot of the things that we can measure now, we have to filter a lot of those measurements and that noise because really it's just telling us things that we can already assess subjectively. So it's more like it's confirming a lot of old school things that we 
we may or may not have uh, already known. Sure. Off the top of your head, any examples of that? Hitting the ball hard. <laughs> That's good. I, th- I think yeah. we knew that hitting the ball hard was important a hundred years ago. Sure. Um, now we might know exactly how hard is like, you know, kind of this magic threshold. Uh, but yeah, we've, we've pretty much always known that hitting the ball hard is good. And also players have, I would guess, probably always tried to hit the ball nearly as hard as they could because that just feels good and it's very it's a very athletic thing to try to do no that makes that makes a ton of sense (laughs) i really like it i mean obviously data has has changed several different parts of our game for the better and i know how hard it is to try and get out of out of those you know wormholes rabbit holes whatever you want to call them and it's like okay so what is truly important to us and then let's backwards plan from there and so if hitting the ball is hard okay what goes into hitting the ball hard consistently so just trying to to understand and simplify that process because and i think there's a ton of value in that too because i i think that that going down those those things and going that deep into those things has made me realize what's truly important to me as well but but yeah i I, i'm i'm right there with you I, i think that it's always somewhere in between and if there was one formula that made every single player better then we would be irrelevant, but that's not, that's, I mean, that's not ever, uh, that is not the case now. And I don't know that there ever is because like you mentioned, coaching is an art and, and I, I'd love for you to go more in depth with that because that's, that's something that, that you've heard for, that I've heard for a while and it didn't really truly ring uh, home for me until maybe the last six months or so, but, but yeah, go into depth of why you think that coaching is an art. Okay. So for, first of all, um, I am, I would definitely consider myself still a very young coach. So I, I don't think I have enough experience to talk on this uh, from a, a more mastered level. So this is just me and my six years of five years of coaching experience. But I think the art comes from being able to pick your spots and uh, knowing when to take a loss for the greater good. You know, sometimes you you have to concede things for the players and you have to balance a player's emotional state in that moment versus maybe a long-term goal you have for them versus a long-term emotional state and versus what's happening currently with their performance or where they're at with their training. There's there's a lot of uh, variables that really cannot be codified you know, you, you, there's no handbook for it because basically every player is a, a singular N equals one case study. And so the art is, you know, navigating each player as a true individual um, in the moment. We, we talk about old school and new school a lot, but that's where I think, you know, so, like you mentioned, some of these, some of the older coaches who truly have such simple answers to uh, just these different complex problems that we see that's the art of coaching for me too and i you obviously alluded to that and and i think that there's there's so much value in that you know and and it's just i that is the path to mastery for me and being able to answer a super complex question with a very simple answer and it holding up in in several different realms and and that's that's uh, I think that's what we're on, like trying to master the path of the art of coaching. And that's that's something that takes time. And it's not something that you can learn in a textbook. It's something that comes with both textbook 
research and experience. And uh, man, it's just it, whenever we talk about old school and new school, I think that that's do you think that we are kind of painting the old school in a negative light whenever we do that? Yeah, I I felt like there's been this strange it's almost like a, a war against old school. It, it, maybe it's the in like the trendy thing to do if you're a young coach or if you're kind of part of this new wave of baseball. And I, I I'm not really a fan of that at all because you know, kind of what we're talking about, does anyone ever really stop to ask why a an you know, quote unquote old school coach might be saying the things they're saying? We, I guess sometimes we'll hear something simple or that seems so rudimentary, um, and we assume it's because they don't know anything deeper than that. But I would like to give the benefit of the doubt that it's actually because they know things so in-depth that they know everything that they shouldn't say. And they have the ability and the artfulness to express something that will give very large returns in a very succinct, simple manner. That's the goal, right? I mean, if we're truly, truly trying to help our players. And again, if you ask the question, you know, what do you mean by that? There is a more in-depth answer in there, you know, but like you mentioned earlier, silence is a sound and not saying more than you have to, to get your point across is an art. And I really like that. So let's talk a little bit about, let's go, you know, off of our soapboxes for sure and get back into uh, making mechanical changes. So I've come in again, we'll, we'll set the, we'll set the, the story again. I've come in, you've seen my quality of movement, my timing, uh, my rhythm, my tempo, it all sucks. Just be, that's why I'm a coach. Uh, but it, uh, let, let's talk about if, if you're going to make a mechanical change and, and let's go with, with the minor league guys that you're working with, because again, they, they have had this swing. They've been super successful for a long period of time. That's why they're getting paid to play the game, but you maybe see a thing or two that could help them to be better and maybe they haven't failed yet, but they've been obviously they've been successful up to this point, but how does that conversation look like whenever you are trying to make a change to a player swing? Uh, Because again, it's, it's so close to us that, you know, and and it's, it's, it almost is part of us. It really is part of us. Like our swing is us. It's a reflection of us. Uh, But how do you, how do you help a player with that? Even if they haven't, let's take out the the option of they haven't approached you about it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's it's touchy. Like you said, it's part of the swing is part of a player's identity. Um and some of them more so than others. You know, there's I've I've had quite a few players that are a lot more open to uh possibilities and and changing things, but a lot there's also, you know, quite a few players that really be, this thing that has gotten them so close to their ultimate goals is absolutely a fundamental core of who they are. And so to to approach and to broach the subject of changing it is very difficult. So first and foremost, if there is no trust in relationship, then that's really not a conversation that can even, it's a non-starter. So before that even happens, if I don't have a rapport and relationship with that player, I, I really, I can't even begin to to try to change something about uh, something so deep and core level to them. But let's say I do have a relationship with them. I think framing questions and kind of asking, you know, lines of having lines of questioning that would allow them to hopefully get to some realizations uh, themselves is a powerful way 
to at least start the conversation of of change i i would i want to avoid telling them that they need to change and i would much rather have them almost feel like it's their idea and their realization that perhaps they are going to need to change for future success at the major league level because no one wants to be you know a minor league all-star for their whole life all these players i would hope their goal is to be long-time major leaguers and impact players. Oh, that was really good. And, and that's something that uh, it's a younger coach. I took for granted that, you know, that I, one, I, I was way too egotistical thinking that I had all of the answers, but I forget, I think the, the, especially, you know, early on, we forget how close we are to doing that because we've worked really hard regardless of how successful we've been on our craft. And for someone that you may or may not know really well, to tell you, depending on uh, obviously how much street cred that they have and how good that they are, but them telling you that you're wrong, it immediately puts you in a defensive position. So I really like how you, how you presented that uh, to the player and something that I'm trying to get better at. And, and I I feel like I'm gaining some traction, but I haven't gotten to get into the nuts and bolts yet because we didn't have a season, but that's game planning. And uh, you got to do this last year. Again, you've got all of this data on, on every, just about every picture that you're going to face with video and, and all these different angles. And, and you've got vertical break and horizontal break and spin rate and strike percentage and all of these different things. And so let's, let's talk about what game planning looks like for you. And then let's start with what you do. And then let's filter it down to when you present it to the players. And it, it could be on an individual basis or it could be as a group of what the next starting pitcher is. So let's pretend like we're playing a game tomorrow. What does your process look like in preparing for that starting pitcher? And then take us through how you would present it to the players. Let's we're starting. We'll, we'll do um, it's the, it's the night before uh, a series with a, a new team. Perfect. So let's I'm probably going to kind of gather all of our internal um, advanced scouting information and just maybe print that out for myself or save it as a PDF. And that's, that's more for me. It's not necessarily things that I'm going to share with the players cause I don't want to overload them, but that's where I'll start. And then the, the way I'd filter it down is usually I will, I'd go by what I think players most often, the information they most often want to know. So they do like to know, um, certain usages in counts. So I'll probably provide them with just count usages of the pitches for any of the pitchers. And then really what I, what I need to know real time is kind of the, the, the bird's eye view, you know, zoomed out uh, information about any pitcher. So what do they have and how hard do they throw them? Now for individual game planning against a pitcher, there seems to be two kind of general approaches. Either you can plan against the pitcher's best stuff or their strengths or you can plan for the hitter's best stuff and their strengths. And I, I prefer to plan around a hitter's strengths rather than more of what I consider a defensive, uh, protective approach of you know conforming to the pitcher's strengths. So individually, we'll look at some hot and cold zones of the hitters and how that relates to the pitchers they're going to face. And we're going to figure out you know where should this hitter look tonight against this pitcher. What should they be hunting? How are they going to do damage? Those kind of things. I really like that. And is that a conversation that you have with different players on, hey, what do you want? 
like I, I don't like I'll, I'll I'll get it for you and we can talk about it. But is there anything in particular that you want to see or or feel or anything like that? Yes, absolutely. To answer that question, I will have I will ask players what they want. Um, not every player is going to want the same amount of material. Some players don't want anything, and that is that's totally okay if it's working. You know, if it works, it works. Sometimes players might need to be pushed to do a little more homework and planning before a game because, you know, at the major league level, most of these hitters do some pretty extensive planning, whether it's formal planning or kind of like experiential reflection. You know, you have uh, veteran guys that have this giant database of information in their own heads and they can kind of recall things. So maybe they don't necessarily consult the, uh, the black and white data, but they're still doing game planning. So I do want to build those kinds of, you know, um, habits into the minor league players, because it seems to be a very important aspect of hitting at the major league level where development kind of takes a backseat. And now performance is the number one most important thing. I really like that. And so let's, let's, uh, fast forward into, okay, you've had the meeting and now you're going into, your pregame stuff. And so t- talk to us a little bit about the daily routines of the players, just the importance of it. And just talk to us a little bit about, you know, pregame routines and how, uh, how important those are for every individual player. Sure. So maybe we should make a distinction between uh, like a developmental uh, time and um, the actual pregame routine. So in the developmental time, we are, we're definitely attacking things that we think the player needs to get better at. So these are going to be a lot more fo- focused, poignant, um, you know, bang for your buck drills that are very individual to the player. We're trying to drive some change, but the real pre we'll say like 30 minutes before stretch, uh, that kind of pregame stuff. That's in my opinion, that's for the player. I want to let them do what they think they need to do to be in a very good headspace and state of mind, and at the same time be prepared from pitch number one. So, you know, most most every organization at this point, there will be a machine set up pregame just to get the game speed up to par, uh, something fast out of a machine, and then, you know, a space for, do, for doing, you know, whatever kind of routine work they need, T-work, flips, anything like that. But I'm not really going to, I'm not going to drive the ship or steer the ship in that time. That's, that's their time. No, really good. I, I like that. And, and thank you for making that distinction between the two. And so we, we go through our, you know, feel good routines we're, we go through our game prep We're we're getting ready for the game. Now the game starts and what is, what does that in game and dugout conversation look like? So what are you paying attention to? What conversations are you trying to have? And just get, like, give us a, a bird's eye view of if we saw you in a dugout and we were curious and we we're like, hey, what is what is Jason talking with these guys about? <laughs> or you see the players talking about this pitcher. Kind of what does that look like? Yeah, I, I try to keep it very casual and relaxed. And I really love maybe kind of taking players along with me in observation of other players. I think it's a really uh, powerful tool just to have players be kind of actively observing other players because they get, a lot of times they become hyper-focused on themselves and their own stuff. And I, I think it's good to, to kind of bring them out of that and let them see other things 
and give them some more broad perspective of some general problems. Like I love pointing out um, timing and just the look and the, my my mentor calls it the silhouette of a batter. I want them to see things that that are they're very non-technical yet they lead to technical effects if that makes sense and performance effects. And so something that that I think that a lot of us could do a better job of because I again it, kids now are playing a lot but they're playing with and this is more on the amateur level. Well, I guess in in minor leagues too, because you may be moving teams quite quite frequently. But you see a lot of good teams that have great conversations about what the pitcher is doing in the dugout. And I think in the amateur space, because again, I, whenever I worked there, there wasn't a lot of conversation about baseball. Because I, to be honest, I don't think that they knew about baseball a lot. They knew like the the nuts and bolts of it but they weren't attuned to the fine details about it because number one i think that even our like our our parents our grandparents were really attuned to that because they played a lot they watched it a lot or as much as they could and they paid attention to those things and you know i i didn't really watch a ton growing up and so i i learned a ton whenever i was whenever i started coaching but I think that that's something that we can teach. Like, I think that, that it's something we can teach them the nuances of the game and how to talk about that stuff. And I think that that will free them up to be able to do that because Absolutely. with kids, they, they don't want to, they don't want to look stupid. So they don't want to say something that's stupid. So they stick with what they know. And I think that this generation more than any other generation is so afraid of that. They're afraid to put themselves out there and say something like that because they're, their fear of, of peer pressure, right? Fear of other people's opinions. And so we can label that as FOPO, but, uh, but yeah, so I think that that's something that we can teach. Is that something that, again, we're, we're trying to prepare these guys to be major league players. Everyone is a prospect and we want to make sure that they, they have the tools necessary to be able to thrive in that environment. Do you think that that's something that we can teach? Is it something that you've tried to do? Yes, it's absolutely something that can be taught and maybe it's not so much teaching them. It's, it's, uh, it's more of freeing them to be to feel comfortable and safe to do that. Cause a lot of the times having a conversation about the game when you're not necessarily, when you're still kind of learning the, the nuance of the game can be scary because you might say something that's not correct. So really it all ties back to, you need to have very strong relationships. There needs to be really good rapport both between you and the player, but also kind of more of a culturally on the team. There has to be a safety in ideas and being wrong and you know failing and having converse, open real conversations fruitful conversations but i absolutely think that it's such a powerful thing to just be an active observer of the game watch the game i i i've heard this so many times from almost every coach i've ever talked to is that almost this explosion of this vantage when you finally start coaching when you remove yourself from you know playing into coaching, how all of a sudden you understand the game and you see so much more than you ever had when you were a player. And I think that's because as a coach, you're, the, the job forces you to be a much more active observer of everything. And so if we can just impart some of those uh, habits and skills on the player, I would hope that it would translate to performance before it's too late. You know, you don't want to become this nuanced expert of the game after you're done. You would love to have that that kind of inside information and view while you're playing because you can leverage it and take advantage of it. And I love having conversations about picking tips, you know, pitch tipping and trying to figure out, you know, what are the, what are the pitchers tells and, 
you know, is the catcher setting up different ways, that kind of thing. Even if it's, even if there, none of that is happening in the game, just opening that possibility kind of like hooks the players into trying to, trying to see it. And, you know, if there's nothing there, that's okay. At least now they're almost excited to, to see more than they had been before. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the, one of my favorite things to do with, with amateur players in a dugout was, Hey, can you, can you steal the other team's uh, pitching signs? You know, like, (laughs) cause, cause most of the people go to the number system now, which is, you know, which is, it is what it is. And it's a little harder to break, (laughs) but you had a coach over there that's given a thousand different signals on his nose and, and his ears and and whatever. And I'm like, especially for the POs, cause they need stuff to do. So you'd be like, hey, see, see if you can steal their signals. And, you know, it just gives them something to look for, and it gets it it teaches them about the game within the game, and it gets them excited about doing something rather than just talking about you know what they're going to do over the weekend. Which is, again, it's not something that you can be called out about. And and so I, I think that we need to keep that in mind that peer pressure is real. And so anytime that we can teach the game within the game like that, I think that we need to try and remember to take the opportunity to do so because, like you mentioned. It's really interesting whenever you get done playing that you start to see the game from so many other different perspectives because you have to. And whenever we're playing, we see the game from ours. And so what goes on with our perspective is, you know, our, our perception is our reality. And that's all that we think that, that, that goes on, but it's truly not. But le- while we're talking about perception and reality, say you've got a player who is struggling in within the season. What's your approach in, in going about helping them so let's say that that, again me being the sucky baseball player i am i'm I'm like over 25 with 15 k's and i just can't see the ball at all i have nothing like i'm I'm like jason i i I, it looks like it's coming a thousand miles an hour it looks like a golf ball Uh, how are you helping me okay so assuming that they're they're coming and they want help because if they if they don't want help or if they don't recognize or don't think that they're in a in a place that requires help then you know, again, non-starter, but let's assume that they, they want help. I'm going to start from the start. So I, I need to know their approach. I need to know their mindset going into the, into the box. I probably even need to know how they're just overall feeling outside of the park. Are they, you know, super stressed? Are they not sleeping? All those things are, are going to affect all the stuff that happens on the field. And then I want to work from the beginning to the end. You know, I don't want to, I'm not going to look at how a sprinter leans through the ribbon and try to come up with a, a way to make the whole race faster. I want to see how he comes out of the blocks. So for the hitter, I'm going to look at general stuff like um, their timing. Are they doing any kind of preparation on the pitcher, like watching video and and getting a timing of the starting pitcher before the game? Do they look out of control in their forward move, which could be affecting their vision? So all these things are you know, it'll be led by the conversations. Like you said, oh, the ball looks like a golf ball in a thousand miles an hour. So to me, that sounds like, okay, some kind of excessive head movement is causing vision problems or, you know, he's not recovered enough. So his whole visual perception is, is out of control. But I like to start from the very start, whether that's mechanically, you know, in the swing or even off the field. I really like that. What about a guy who is uh, just killing the ball and it looks like a beach ball. <laughs> Stay far away from him. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's really good. And I, keep I other people away from him too. <laughs> <laughs> Don't talk to him at all. That's good. So uh, this is my final one before we really get into the the quick hitters, the lightning section. 
what is your usual routine? What, what, let's go last year. Cause it, it'll be a little bit crazier this year, but what did last year's daily routine look like for you? So say you woke up at this time, just t- kind of take us through a typical day. Okay. Uh, woke up at, we'll say 10 AM walked to the field. I lived, uh, maybe an eighth of a mile from the field last year in Fayetteville. So I would walk to the field. I would lift. Then I would start kind of, uh, reviewing video, doing some some game prepping that day, basically getting all the all the logistics done before any of the players show up and uh, and really planning what I think I want to do with the players that are going to have early work and things like that, knowing that a lot of it can uh, knowing that a lot of it can change. But I just want to have some kind of um, you know framework to operate. I don't want to necessarily go blind, but I also don't want to restrict myself to a rigid plan. Then lots of individual time with the players, you know, uh, individual defense work, uh, hitting work, game planning, uh, conversations, uh, the game, obviously. And then uh, at night, I would kind of I would work on a lot of uh, more technical programming stuff, um, developing some things for our hitters and our hitting department. And I would probably leave the ballpark at around 2 a.m. every night, kind of a night owl. Sure. Sure. I love hearing people's routines because everybody is a little bit different and I didn't get a chance to establish mine. Uh, so hope, hopefully I'll be able to, to tell you about it uh, this time next year. <laughs> yeah. Let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and, and get into the lightning section. Now these are, these are more quick hitters than added commentary for me. What is the, what is the latest thing learned that you're really excited about? Maybe not learned, but I've been, I've been rereading a lot of Nassim Taleb's books and just kind of um, reestablishing them in my own coaching practice. So I, I guess um, not ever being too hot or cold about any one particular thing as it happens, you kind of have to take things a lot more long-term. You know, a lot of it inspired by his book, Fooled by Randomness. Like, Don't necessarily put your all your eggs in one basket, especially when that basket can be pretty tenuous and you don't even know if it's truly representative of reality really good one uh and and he wrote anti-fragile too right that's on my list he's got a lot he's got fooled by randomness black swan anti-fragile skin in the game he's got um, a really cool book on aphorisms it's just like these little uh, one or two sentence quotes and phrases and you're supposed to kind of just read one or two per day and they just you kind of want to sit on them and digest them and they make you really think I love that. I'm going to have to have to pick that up. Okay. Question number two is the best coaches that you've ever been around. And you've mentioned you have a mentor here uh, a couple of times, but what, what set them apart? Okay. So, uh, the, probably the best coaches I've ever had were, um, uh, Jim Kerner was my hitting coach at Buffalo. Tommy Weber is my mentor. Uh, he's, he's by far the best coach I ever had. Uh, and obviously, I mean, I, he's a huge part of my life. Um, and then I had Doug Mankiewicz as a manager, Dougie Baseball. And all three of them, I think what sets them apart is they were honest. They are true. Um, they they always felt like players' coaches. And there was just a level of professionalism that I I connected with it. Like I was I was never treated like a kid or like a, a youngster or like even like a player traditionally, or at least how I remember being treated, you know, in high school, I, I was, I felt like I was treated as an equal. 
All right, next question. What is a drill or a game competition or just something in training that you know that players love? I, I do this drill called, I just call it like baseball tennis or just tennis. And uh, the basic idea is uh, I've got a bucket of tennis balls behind an L screen and I'm kind of soft rainbow flipping them, not flipping, uh, like overhand, but soft. And I'm the, the, the rules are I'm allowed to toss it into this four foot wide by let's say eight or 10 feet deep rectangle. And the hitter has the choice of either hitting it out of the air or letting it bounce once. And they get rounds of five. And the, the goal is just to hit as many hard line drives as they can. Uh, and it it's really fun because there's a ton of variability and athleticism and built-in timing and self-organization. And it's different enough from actual hitting where they start to to do things in their swing that is outside of their normal game swing. And a lot of times the things they they do are exactly the things that we're trying to uh, kind of build into their game swings. So it's, uh, the players love it cause it's, it's kind of fun. It's athletic. It's a little random and chaotic. And I love it too, because it actually causes a lot of really cool things to happen. What is something that you want your players to do maybe on a field uh, that may go unnoticed by most people, but you think is important? Something, and just to give you an example, something whenever I was in high school and I coached catchers was always introduce yourself to the umpire. Like it's something that, that most people don't know. You shake your hand, you tell them your name, you say, yes, sir. And then you move on. But it's something that I thought was important. Is there anything that comes to mind like that for you? Yeah. Um, I really like when players are not chummy with the fans, but I do appreciate when players acknowledge fans and recognize that, you know, this whole thing wouldn't be possible without fans supporting it. So uh, I guess I dislike when players are rude or uh, standoffish towards fans. And I really appreciate it when players, you know, give that little extra five seconds just to acknowledge a fan, especially kids. Um, so for me that I, I definitely notice that. And I really like it when that happens. All right. Next question is anything that is disheartening that you see, whether that it be in the coaching world, talk about social media quite a bit, but is there anything that you would like to see changed from that perspective? Youth baseball, I think has become uh, an abomination. I'll, I'll just say, it. I think it's an abomination. Now the pay for play. I wish kids had more avenues to play baseball that didn't involve investing you know, thousands of dollars. And I wish they had less involvement of adults. You know, I, I, I think kids would love the game for a lot longer and not feel so much pressure if they were freed from the adults and this environment that the adults have created, which largely centers around making money. And then final one, you, you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned a couple of books earlier. But what are some of your favorite books and resources, uh, let's say top two or three that have helped shape your coaching career, that if you could buy them for all of our guests, what would those be? I think Anti-Fragile, it would be a, an excellent one. I think it's Taleb's strongest work. I love the, I love everything by Stuart McMillan. Not necessarily, he doesn't, I don't think he has any actual official books published, but you know, he's got a blog. He definitely is actively involved in the performance community. Um, if you follow Altus or his own personal blog, then there's just a ton of good information. And he is the great combination of a very 
technically knowledgeable coach who also has an extreme appreciation for the art of coaching and works with the highest caliber athletes, including multiple Olympians. Uh, so he's just kind of like the, the best of all the worlds. And I feel like I can trust his perspective. And even though it's not baseball, I think there is so much to gain from coaches like that. I love it. And so Jason, I appreciate your time. And I know that time is valuable during the season and and I know that I got better today. So I truly, truly appreciate everything that you have given us today. I will make sure that I link those resources in the show notes and I'll include your Twitter contact, even though you have the app deleted on your phone. Is there, is there any other contact? If, if anyone wants to get in touch, I'll put on the off season down there as well. But is, is there anything else that you'd like to include? Well, people can, people can follow me on Twitter at Kanzler thinks and they can, they can follow my performance page on Instagram at um, Kanzler performance. Perfect. Well, I'm just going to open up the mic for you and, and give you free reign to say really whatever you'd like, if there's anything that you'd like to, to leave with our listeners or, or just anything that, that we didn't talk about, but I'm going to mute myself and the mic is yours. Anything else that you'd like to tell them before you go? I just want to thank you very much for, for having me. I really appreciate it, Jonathan. This was awesome. You, you, uh, you conduct a great interview and I'm really excited for this season to get going. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.